Welcome to another edition of Membership World, the place for membership professionals, and brought to you in association with RD Mobile. My name is Gordon Glenister, and I'm a keynote speaker and consultant to the membership and association world. Now, before we start, I want to just remind you not to forget to subscribe to the podcast series, just to make sure that you don't miss a future episode. In today's edition, we're going to be continuing our series of how to grow your membership in challenging times. We'll be talking about how well-run events can make a difference in getting more members involved, particularly when you have access to international experts and speakers that otherwise would have probably cost quite a considerable amount of money to fly in. I'll be talking to Lee Davis, who's the CEO of the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Now, Lee is always known for being fairly upbeat, and certainly he was even during the lockdown period. And I was just keen to find out a little bit about how the Institute still managed to pull in more members during the COVID crisis and attract people in paying seminars when so many uh, were offering them for free. So Lee started by giving me a bit of an intro into the CIPA. So Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys, professional body for the UK's intellectual property lawyers, if you like. They style themselves as patent attorneys, but they work across patents, trademarks, copyright and designs. Oh, we've just nudged over four and a half thousand members now. So that's increased. I've been at SEPA for nine years and that's increased by about a thousand in that time. And we're still and we're still seeing growth at the moment, even in the even in the current climate. About just under 3,000 of those are UK qualified patent attorneys, registered patent attorneys, uh, also European patent attorneys. So working across the UK and Europe. The rest are made up with our student body. Our student body is always quite large because it takes five to seven years to qualify as a patent attorney. So the student body always numbers about 750, 800 students. And then we have an interest in IP because there may be judges or solicitors or barristers or overseas attorneys that make up the, the rest of the membership. Individual membership association, so not a, not a trade association in that sense, a professional body, but we share some of our characteristics, if you like, with trade bodies in that um, almost all of our members' subscriptions are paid for by their firms. And if that's a large firm that's on block, so it's a single relationship with the firm for fees, whilst you might have 300, 400 members at that firm, there is a kind of crossover there, if you like. We're also the approved regulator for the profession. The Legal Services Act prevents us from regulating hands-on. We have to regulate at um, arm's length. So we have a separate regulatory body, the Intellectual Property Regulatory Board, that does that for us. So there's that element to our work. We provide more of the professional support, representative activities, lobbying, continuing professional development. I was going to say lots of seminars. There haven't been many of those in the last um, four months, but lots of webinars, the, the normal events that you do, peer-reviewed journal. We're a fairly standard professional body, but I like to think that SEPA dragged itself kicking and screaming into the 21st century in good time to be ready for all of this. Full-time staff-wise, there are about 20 of us. Me as chief exec and then a team underneath me. It doesn't tell the full story about the size of SEPA because we do we do quite a lot of training for our members. So we use a lot of very, very part-time tutors. So there's a, there's a, there's a big body of staff under that, those 20 in terms of tutors. We are an examining agency as well. So we have the examinations side, which again runs largely separately so there are staff on that side that i haven't included in that 20 and of course they include assessors examiners verifiers but in reality there's probably about 200 of us who have some kind of financial dependence on sepa for a wage but uh, yeah just just the 20 of us in the in the office not been there for four months so let's just take us back to when this all happened in march 
What were the immediate things that you did, given that we were facing this lockdown? I mean, I think it was fairly obvious to us that it was coming, so we didn't wait. We departed the office earlier than the lockdown. About a week before there was anything from government that required us to do so, we were able to be off and out of the office. It was intended to be a test week. We never came back. It's been an extended test. I think it's working. I can tell you more about that in a moment. I think we were lucky in that we had prepared for this before over two other events. So about six, seven years ago, we had a fairly nasty, invasive malware attack on us. Lots of agents seem to think that because we're the professional body for patent attorneys, we might store lots of data about uh, you know, in- industrial secrets and things like that that might be useful. And that caused us to go entirely remote with all of our data. So, so I-, I know a lot of people were doing it around about that time, but we did it in a much more structured, systematic way and had to make sure that it was secure and accessible to a range of devices. So that, was, that gave us a little bit of a head start in that we had a reliable technology base to work around. And then three, three I'm sure it was about three years ago, we were still in the old office in, in uh, Chancery Lane. And there was the combination of the Hatton Garden robbery that happened on exactly the same day as the almost Great Fire of London that happened underground in Hoban, which closed Hoban and the legal sector for about three weeks while they did uh, reparatory work there. So we, we'd had that period of about a month when we were out of the office working remotely three years ago. So we, we had confidence that we could work around our data and that the technology would hold up. So we've got quite a good story to tell. I mean, people have, it's not, it's not been that straightforward. People have suffered in terms of, you know, if you're a younger members of staff might be living at home, uh, having to work from bedrooms and stuff like that, because they've got parents that are using the rest of the house as various kind of bits of office space and, and work from home space. We've got staff who are, staff who are parents and are, and are trying to do what all of us are doing in terms of balance and the childcare side with the, with the working from home side. I was quite straight up with my staff when we left. We had a staff meeting so that we left en masse and I was very clear to tell them that I wasn't expecting them to work from home. I was expecting them to go home because it was safe and that if they were able to work when they were there to do so, but not, not to feel afraid of sticking their hands up in the air and saying, for whatever reasons, be it kind of physical space or uh, personal circumstances, can't work today. Yeah, this, is, this isn't doable for me. So we've had quite an open culture around that, really. And staff have been quite open and happy to say, talk about their personal circumstances. So, you know, you, you see when someone's sitting on a windowsill and working on, on a laptop on a windowsill, you have to say to them, do you want us to ship you out a desk? You know, have you got the space for it? We've done the fairly typical stuff that other people have done. We have a team meeting. To be honest, we don't talk a lot about work and that. It is mainly just to connect with um, everyone and have a conversation. And I'm just one of the team in that sense. It's not a thing that's led by the chief exec or the senior team. It's, you know, it's just, let's switch our cameras on. Let's see where each of us are working today and have a, have a chat about how the, how the land lies. We do a couple of coffee morning sessions as well, which are, are more even more casual than that. You don't have to turn up. It's trying to replicate sort of like the water cooler, coffee break type conversations that happen there's no there's no three-line whip on any of this it's just pitch up if you feel it would be useful to you we do daft things like we spend an evening together playing things like taskmaster where i am the greg davis character that's been great fun so we we made an early decision that we wanted to retain the social aspect the other thing that we did though was a few years ago we did invest in training and identifying people to be mental health first aiders we speak quite openly about uh, mental health in secret something that i'm a great advocate of and actually well, all, all of the staff are. We just have a culture where we find it quite easy to talk to one another when it when things are tough before this, and that's carried on through. So I've got three staff who are trained mental health first aiders, and also they've been doing quite a lot of work themselves around what 
mental health first aid looks like in lockdown and what it looks like remotely. One of the other early things that I did was um, I made a decision early doors to not go for furlough because yeah, we, we, don't, we don't sit on a big reserve. We tried to break even. If we have a surplus, it's usually between 50 and 100K. So there's not a lot of fat there. And obviously, and I'm sure we're going to come on to this, we've lost things like events and stuff like that. So, so the, the budget's taken a bit of a hammering this year. My reaction wasn't to immediately go for furlough. It was to think about how I can use staff that might be finding that they had more time on their hands because there was less of their normal work to do some more new and innovative stuff for us. So we've introduced podcasts. The staff have introduced podcasts for themselves. We've rolled forward. We were going to be looking next year at a new website, tail end of this year and into next year. So because a member of staff had a bit of time, we've pulled that forward and they've been leading on the new website. So we've signed the contract on that and that, that works in preparation now. So I was quite reluctant to use furlough all the time that I knew that financially we were okay. And actually I could get the staff to be doing stuff. Yeah, we rolled out quizzes for members and other sorts of member engagement stuff that we hadn't done previously. We do now have a couple of staff on furlough. And that's only been because through the through the mental health conversations that we've had, they've said, it's getting a bit tough for me now. You know, I've got very, very extensive caring responsibilities at home and it would be good if I could take a little bit of time out. So so we, ha- we have used furlough. At SEPA, we started off by having a conversation with the, in- the entire staff and no one took the offer up in the first instance. So it was, you know, it was, and, and it only came after a few weeks when people started to say, yeah, actually, I can see the benefit for this for me. So what we did was we, we again, had a conversation across the staff and said, so X is, you know, you know their circumstances, you know how they're living and working. They're saying they want some time out. Actually, their work has dipped in any case. So we've just got these bits and pieces that we need to cover. How can we cover that? I have a great staff. People just stand up and say, yeah, I'll do that. Well, that's all because of you lead them well, to be honest, Lee. And that's, that's a lot. There's a lot to be said for that. So, um, you know, that, that's really good to hear. Some really great initiatives that I'm hearing now. It's, uh, this is the most positive interview I think I've had. It's interesting you should say that because um, we're, we're just getting ready for audit. And uh, our auditors said exactly the same to me. They said, oh, we've had, we've had about 10 conversations with chief executives going through the prep for audit. And they're all saying, oh, it's doom and gloom. Our reserves are down by 30%. You know, we don't have it. No one's saying what you're saying about bringing work forward, keeping staff busy, increasing member engagement. But this is this is what will define you. This is what will define the association, I think. And uh, this is why it's so interesting. But it's why we come to work. I don't get it. I don't get it. So when we have these kind of conversations in the net, various networks that we're in and people are saying, oh, this is really tough. I don't know I'm going to get through this. This is what the job is. You know, I, I don't like the easy days. I don't like the status quo. These are absolutely the things that define us. And I'm not saying I'm getting everything right. I'm sure I'm not. SEPA's almost 150 years old. It's got a long history of its members being connected with it, engaged with it. You know, other associations would absolutely die for the membership engagement that I have. I don't have the anxieties that most other chief execs have about recruitment, you know, acquisition, retention, those lapsing, those those sorts of issues. Genuinely, we hit 97% renewals and we're growing at about five to seven percent a year in terms of through the new student intake you know it's we've got pretty much 99 percent penetration of the uk profession so if you're a uk patent attorney you are a member it's been it's been voluntary for 15 years or so now so and we we, we've managed to maintain that so our our renewal is a is an annual calendar renewal first of january so in in many senses we were ahead of the game renewal had started 
Our members don't generally pay until about February, March time. They're law firms. It goes into their finance systems and it, it creaks its way through eventually. But, uh, but we, we're not usually unduly worried about that. So I had to report to my council over the last couple of months. Instead of being at 97%, in May, we were at 94 or 93%. And that, you know, it's all, you know so we, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to recover these 2 or 3%? It's not a worry. I mean, I'm no fool. I'm not complacent. I know that that's largely because of circumstance. January renewal, rather, I mean, 1st of April renewal must have been horrific for people to be trying to manage that. Not just the practicalities of having staff doing it remotely, but also you're dealing with people who themselves are working remotely and aren't probably thinking about membership at the moment. But in, in terms of the engagement side, our members have asked for more from us particularly up to, let's say we've been running things like kind of socials and quizzes and stuff like that, which have been both really, really fun to do and hugely successful in terms of the numbers of members engaging themselves in that. The webinar program has gone through the roof. We, I mean, we've, all, we've always been a big provider of CPD for our members. It's aside from membership and conferences and events, it's our, our other, uh, it's one of our three big income streams. So we're not dependent. So what's on... the split on that question? What's the split of total versus, you know, membership, uh, events and education? If I take the examination board out of the equation, because we do run it largely separately and just talk about big secret, if you like the, the membership side of it, we're probably about 50, maybe 55% on membership subscriptions, probably 25, 30% on webinars and then 25-ish percent on other other events and activities. So that's good. So have you seen, although you've obviously seen a big drop in event revenue, have you seen that replaced in some way by education? Well, we haven't seen a big drop in event revenue, but again, it's about circumstances and timing. So I'll, I'll tell you, let me tell you the webinar bit first, and then I'll maybe move on to the, to the other events. So in terms of webinars, when mandatory CPD was introduced for our members, CEPA as the representative body, because that was being dealt with by IPREG, the regulator, our arm's length regulator, CEPA as the representative body was able to sort of step in and provide most of the CPD. Our members do go elsewhere for their learning, but by and large, they come to us and they buy that over and above their membership. We outsell webinars to our members. They, they go between sort of like 30 and 45 quid. So they're not expensive in, in the legal services sense. You know, anyone who's providing a webinar out there is charging far more than that if it's um, in, in law. And... We'd got to the stage where we were doing somewhere between sort of like 75 and 90 webinars a year. We're doing one a day at the moment. We've been doing one a day for the last 12 weeks. They're not all paid for. We do, we've we've put some sort of stuff out to the members because we feel they need it, particularly around things like mental health and the kind of softer core skills that they need. But uh, people have got time to learn. Law doesn't stop. Case law develops. And uh, there's, there's been a real big appetite for learning and uh so the webinar programs some of those of course have been seminars that would have happened and that have been delivered online instead so we, we normally do two or three seminars a month as well so so part of that increase is just the, the natural move from seminar to webinar but there's also been a, a say a, a natural increase in the numbers of webinars as well so uh, and this is something that the staff have been you know they've been absolutely fantastic the staff apart from giving them the freedom to do this stuff i don't do any of it myself they know that they can go and talk to members they can have a conversation if they pick up on something that might make for an interesting webinar there there it's for them to then turn that into a, an online event and they do it and they do it brilliantly so what about stuff like sponsorship then obviously that's that's not an also getting that online online sponsorship is harder isn't it i just wonder if you did, or did you have you not bothered with it We've never really bothered with online sponsorship. I mean, it might be something that we may think about in the future. But say we were doing 75 or 90 webinars in a, in a year, and they're somewhere between 30 and 45 quid a pop, and you've got two to 300 
delegates on every webinar. So it's a significant income stream, but it's also, that's a lot of transactions. It's a lot of transactions for us and it's a lot of transactions for our member firms. So we are thinking about how we perhaps roll that into membership. Might mean that we need to tinker with membership subscriptions because of course, we still need to be able to afford the underlying infrastructure that allows those webinars to happen. But I don't, I don't particularly want to make money out of them. We've played around with apps. We've used them for the conference in the past and we intend to do it for the virtual conferences that we'll run this year. We'll be large, largely app-based. We've spoken to our members about apps for general communication and patent attorneys are at the leading edge of technology, aren't they? That you would think that they're, they're, they're the leading edge of, edge of invention. But actually, in terms of their appetite for consuming information in these ways, in their personal lives, the younger side of the profession, absolutely. But I'm going to use a term, and it's not a pejorative term at all. Patent attorneys are desk jockeys. Most of their work is done at desk. You know, if, 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 they're, if they're working on applications and they're filing and so on, you know, drafting, everything is done at desk. That, that's one of the things that's not changed in the profession. So their professional use of technology tends to be laptop, desktop, that sort of thing. So actually, the more traditional ways of communicating electronically, so the newsletter is fantastically well read, because ping it arrives in your email, you are sat there working, you open it. So we're not dismissing the move to an app, I'm sure it will come and I'm sure it will come through the increased use of it for online conferences and other events. But at the moment, there are no problems for us to be solved in terms of communicating with our members on a regular basis. I have to say the the very best decision we made, which was an accidental one, probably back in January, was to shift away from WebEx and move to Zoom for our for our webinars. And as I say, there was that there was no great um, foresight in that. It was simply that we were just cheesed off with the way WebEx just didn't seem to be developing with the times, and that we wanted to try something new. So yeah, we shifted to Zoom. It's meant that you know we've been able to use the the Zoom webinar function, including the polling and all that. Yeah, it's just it's just transformed what we do. So we do three big-ish conferences. We do a, used to be a two-day conference, but we've compressed it down into one day, now, one day now for our members, which is a kind of our big legal IP conference, CEPA Congress. Big flagship event normally happens in places like the QE2 Conference Center and the like. And indeed, it was due to happen there this year in September with a dinner. We get big keynote speakers internationally come along to that. So it's, it's a real biggie for us. So that was on the horizon. We do a similar conference for our IP paralegal members. So these are people who are working as assistants and supporters to our the patent attorney members. And we've started to develop that as a separate profession within IP, which has been a big success story, grown, grown the membership again. So that's a, that's a big success story as well. And we have a, a thematic conference around life sciences, which happens in November. So September, October, November is our sort of like three, our three big, our three big conferences. And again, Fortunately, time-wise, they're still on the horizon. We're working a way to turn them into virtual conferences. We're inspired by things like Memcom. So I, I actually had some of my members who are on the steering committees for these um, conferences attend Memcom just so that they could get a feel for how a virtual conference could work. And they went away from that absolutely inspired by it. Yeah, this this is something we can do kind of. So, so we have an app. We're working with Cvent. They provided the app for the conferences last year. We're, we're reinventing our online events. We're really excited about that. They're going to they'll go across four days rather than one, but only with maybe two and a half or three hours of content with some social stuff built around that. Because one of the things that we felt about Memcom attending it was that the days became full conference days and it, the week felt a bit long. So, so we're trying to not fall in the, into the trap of thinking, hey, we've got four days now, let's fill four days. We, we just want to spread the content out in a way that people can engage with it across the four days. 
it's one of the reasons why we've decided to go for only sort of like two and a half, three hours content a day, because someone can commit to that. That's only an hour or so longer than committing to one of our webinars or online seminars. And we know we've got a membership that's used to consuming learning in that way. So we're, co- we're confident that that'll carry on through. We're selling it as a conference, but also as a series of four individual events that you can sign up for. So you don't have to commit to the week. Uh, if, you, if you know you're going to be able to do the four days and there's enough content in there that interests you, you can sign up for it as you would have signed up for Congress or the IP Paralegal Conference or the Life Sciences Conference. Or equally, you can just buy one of the days. If there's, yeah, if, if there's a day that makes sense for you and that's the one that you want to do, you can do that. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that we'll have greater engagement and greater participation. People still like the networking. They still like a dinner at the end of a conference. That appetite is going to take a while to return. I'm not even sure if we're going to, if people are going to want to do that next year. You know, until people people feel safe and secure in being out and about again. We know when we do a hybrid event at some point on the horizon. So we'll learn a lot this year so that we can carry the hybrid stuff through. I mean, I'd like to see probably conferences that are a mixture of online. And then for those who are able to get to a venue, it sort of moves into that, that you flow that content through. But the other, the other big advantage for us as a, as a global profession, if you like, is not just the delegate side of it, but we've got fantastic speakers lined up this year just because they can come in on Zoom and do it. And that will be our draw. Our draw will be we've got bigger, punchier, more head. We've always been able to draw headline speakers. But, you know, they, they fly in from, it may be somewhere as close as Munich, but it might be Japan, might be China, but certainly the States or Canada. And it's a big ask for them, where this year they're all, they're all lined up, they're all signed up, they're fighting for spots, they're fighting amongst themselves to, to get spots at Congress. So it's absolutely brilliant. And again, again, I might be overconfident, but we'd only paid deposits because we were sitting that far back when this kicked off. So my staff were great at negotiating. I mean, venues were quite hard in the early days in terms of having a negotiation with them. So I just said to the staff, hold off back. Let's wait till we can see the whites of their eyes. Let's, you know, let's, let's see how far they're prepared, prepared to go with this negotiation. And I think as, as terribly unfair, isn't it? But as conference venues got closer to the point where they were a bit concerned that they would have to turn, you know, actually cancel events themselves and lose anything at all, they were happy to say to us, that, well, that, that 10% deposit you've paid, roll it forward to next year. So we've not lost any money on any of our bookings. We've rolled all of it forward to next year. I know it's money spent, so it's out of the account, but it's money I would have spent next year as well. So, And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced because of where we've gone with price point and stuff like that, that we will generate, I want to say as much. We're not going to generate as much. We're going to ger- generate more income through this than we would have done, whilst the individual members will be paying less because you, you take out stuff like you're not paying for catering and you know, you, you're not paying to accommodate staff and speakers and all of those kinds of things that you would, that you would have to do. So when you strip out those costs, you get the cost down. When you section it across a number of days with vibrant content on every day, you're going to get more and different people coming into it in different ways. This is, this is going to be the greatest thing that's happened to us, Gordon. This is, this, is, this is such a brilliant opportunity, and I don't understand why people are worrying about it. No one's expecting perfect. Everyone's expecting... You know, that, that, that sort of stuff's going to happen. Screens are going to pixelate. Text's going to go down. No one's expecting perfect. Well, I think in a way that, and also we're relaxed, aren't we? We're not all suited and booted. I think it makes it more human. I think it makes it more human. And I think that in itself brings people together. One of the biggest benefits of belonging to associations and membership body right up there is a sense of belonging. And this is the perfect opportunity for us to build and engage with communities as people, not just as members, but as people. On the internal governance side, you touched on meetings. So our, our big meetings are what we call our governance meetings. My council meets monthly, whether it needs to or not. You know, it's a habitual thing. It's what we do the first Wednesday of the month. 
I've got about 20 committees. They all meet four or five times a year. Uh, and that would have been obviously in the CEPA office as well. So all, all of that's happened virtually. I have greater attendance, almost full attendance at council. So our last four council meetings have been virtual and they're almost 100% attendance. People are saying they appreciate the fact that they're not having to travel in and out of London. They always thought the technology wouldn't work. They were always reluctant to do it because when we were doing cheesy old audio conferences with a kind of the spider phone in the middle and that, you know, they were crap. Let's be honest. They were crap. Yeah. And, and actually when we tried zoom council meetings with about 10 people around the council table, the people who could get in and then various other people dialing in the dynamic of a physical meeting happening with people dialing into it isn't right because the the physical meeting dominates the virtual attendees. What we've learned through this is when you're all attending on the same terms, it's much, much easier to do. It's much more fun to do. It's more efficient. We get, we get through business more quickly because people are more organized, structured. They've read the papers, they've prepared, they know what they want to say. They know the points they need to make. They're re ready to make decisions. Governance has been so much easier in lockdown. Give it, give it to me all the time in spades. It's been so much easier in lockdown. The other thing that's connected to this thought about what the future looks like is that SEPA have been grappling with how we respond to the climate change emergency. We recognise it's real, but there we are stuck in an office in London. We're fixed into this way of working where people come into the office for work and for meetings and so on. So I want to use coming out of COVID as a way to start the conversation about what we've learned through it being one of the ways we attend to climate change. I don't want to be getting back in my car, driving six, seven miles to the station. And whilst the train is relatively neutral in terms of its impact on the environment, there is still an impact. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be doing it. Not because, not because I'm lazy, not because I don't want to kind of travel into London, but because I don't need to for a lot of the stuff that I, that I do. I've proven that to myself and I've proven it to others. So, um, so we roll CEPA out to the regions to make sure that we connect with our members around the country. That's been more difficult. I mean, you, you can do it through Zoom, but actually the purpose of getting out in the regions is because people want to meet and network regionally. So as a benefit, that's declined. And that's something that we probably need to think about how we, um, how we resurrect. Lobbying has gone through the roof. One of the big services that CEPA provides for its members is lobbying. There's lots to lobby about at the moment. We've got Brexit still kind of on the horizon happening. We've got trade negotiations happening in the US, but um, also Japan, Australia, around the world. And IP permeates trade negotiations because of course it's, it's important that, um, that the IP provisions in those protect the UK, but enable trade to, to happen freely and organically. So there's been lots for us to lobby about. Our members have had more time to come forward and say, these are the really important points. We've had more time. And government's been more open, actually, because you can just quickly set up a Zoom call and you can do it. So if, if lobbying is truly a benefit of membership, and I think it is, lobbying has been the biggest thing that's increased, I think, in the last three or four months. And that's um, through, through a range of reasons. And it's been great to see CEPA do it. You know, it's been great to see us take a lead on that. This podcast is sponsored by RD Mobile, award-winning event and member engagement solutions used by over 350 organizations in 20 countries, powering virtual events and delivering ongoing value. Find out more at rdmobile.com. Well, that's it for another edition of the Membership World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. And thanks again to our sponsor, RD Mobile, and to my producer, Neil Whiteside. 
If you want to get in touch with me, then don't uh, hesitate to drop me an email, gordon at gordonglenister.com. So until next time, it's bye from me.